100 years. 100 years since the end of a conflict from which we've learned nothing. We continue to treat each other with ignorance, with misunderstanding, with violence, with hate. And it has to stop. We're so blessed with a life in this wonderful world. And this short podcast is a nod, a respectful nod, at people who gave their lives so that we can live ours. I'm focusing on poetry and readings from the era of World War I. Such a sweeping title for a horrific time in history. The talk of figures of people who died is just incomprehensible. Yes, I had a family who fought. Yes, I had family on the home front. Across the world, in Denmark, Britain. Nothing can change that it's happened. But we can potentially live a little better than we are by thinking about those who gave and still give to our country. This is a collection of some of my most favoured poems if you can call favour two words that sum up the utmost horror of war, the futility, the cold rawness of these events seen, experienced and immersed into by such brave, courageous souls. People just like you and I were thrown into the midst of something they had no control over. The first one I want to read is by Jessie Pope. A lady on the front line of the home front. By bridge and battery, town and trench, they're fighting with bulldog pluck. Not one, from Tommy to General French, is down upon his luck. There are some who stand and some who fall, but how does the chorus go? The echoing chant in the hearts of all. Are we downhearted? No. There's Jack, God bless him, upon the foam. His isn't an easy task. To strike for England, to strike right home, so much, no more, does he ask. On the dreadnought deck, where the big guns bark, or in quiet depths below, the salt wind wafts us a chanty. Hark, are we downhearted? No! And what of the girl who is left behind, and the wife who misses her mate? Ah, well, we've got our business to mind, though it's only to watch and wait. So we'll take what comes with a gallant heart, as we busily knit and sew, trying, God help us to do our part. Are we downhearted? No, no, no. For the Fallen, by Robert Lawrence Binion, published in the Times newspaper on the 21st of September, 1914. With proud thanksgiving, a mother for her children, England mourns for her dead across the sea. Flesh of her flesh they were, spirit of her spirit, fallen in the cause of the free. Solemn the drums thrill, death august and royal, sing sorrow up into immortal spheres. There is music in the midst of desolation, and a glory that shines upon our tears. They went with songs to the battle, they were young, Straight of limb, true of eye, steady and aglow. 
They were staunch to the end against odds uncounted. They fell with their faces to the foe. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. They mingle not with their laughing comrades again. They sit no more at familiar tables of home. They have no lot in our labour of the daytime. They sleep beyond England's foam. But where our desires are and our hopes profound, felt as a wellspring that is hidden from sight, to the innermost heart of their own land they are known, as the stars are known to the night. As the stars that shall be bright when we are dust, moving in marches upon the heavenly plain, as the stars that are starry in the time of our darkness, to the end, to the end, they remain. The Soldier by Rupert Brooke If I should die, think only this of me, that there is some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be, in that rich earth, a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by the sons of home, and think this heart all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given. Her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter, learnt of friends and gentleness in hearts at peace, under an English heaven. Rupert Brooke sadly did die before the end of World War I, from infection en route to Gallipoli. And this is a response to Rupert Brooke's poem, The Soldier, by May Herschel Clark, the mother. If you should die, think only this of me, in that still quietness where is space for thought, where parting loss and bloodshed shall not be, and men may rest themselves and dream of naught, that in some place... A mystic mile away, one whom you loved has drained the bitter cup till there is naught to drink, has faced the day once more, and now has raised the standard up. And think, my son, with eyes grown clear and dry, she lives as though forever in your sight, loving the things you loved with heart aglow. For country, honour, truth, traditions high, proud that you paid their price, and if some night her heart should break, well, lad, you will not know. In Flanders Fields by John McRae In Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky 
The larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt down, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from falling hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Siegfried Sassoon, another fantastic poet, wrote many poems. Here is the glory of women. You love us when we're heroes, home on leave, or wounded in a mentionable place. You worship decorations, you believe that chivalry redeems the war's disgrace. You make us shells, you listen with delight, by tales of dirt and danger fondly thrilled. You crown our distant ardours while we fight, and mourn our laurelled memories when we're killed. You can't believe that British troops retire when hell's last horror breaks them and they run, trampling the terrible corpses blind with blood. Oh, German mother dreaming by the fire, while you are knitting socks to send your son, his face is trodden deeper in the mud. Perhaps by Vera Britton. Perhaps some day the sun will shine again, and I shall see that still the skies are blue, and feel once more I do not live in vain, although bereft of you. Perhaps the golden meadows at my feet will make the sunny hours of spring seem gay, and I shall find the white may blossom sweet, though you have passed away. Perhaps the summer woods will shimmer bright, and crimson roses once again be fair, and autumn harvest fields a rich delight, although you are not there. Perhaps some day I shall not shrink in pain to see the passing of the dying year and listen to Christmas songs again, although you cannot hear. But though kind time may many joys renew, there's one greatest joy I shall not know again, because my heart for loss of you was broken long ago. It cannot go unmentioned, the contribution of the Gurkhas in World War I and beyond. So in the Himalayan Republic of Nepal, located between the two Asian giants of China and India, there lies the hilltown district of Gorkha. This is famed for being the homeland of the legendary warrior group, the Gurkhas. And with a battle cry, Ayo Gorkhali, meaning the Gurkhas are here, and the motto, it's better to die than to be a coward. The Kukri-wielding warriors, the K-U-K-R-I, is a long curved knife. They, they wield that in battle. They earned a fearsome reputation. And legend has it that once a Gurkha draws a Kukri, he must draw blood. Chairman of the UK-based British Gurkha Welfare Society, BGWS, said... Their bravery and loyalty, coupled with simplicity, are the reasons behind their fame. Former Indian Army Chief Sam Manekshaw states, If a man says he is not afraid of dying, he is either lying 
or as a Gurkha. This information was got from DW.com. Did you know around 200,000 Gurkhas fought in the Great War, with their regiments taking part in battlefields ranging from the trenches of France to Persia and present-day Iran? And in the words of British General Sir James Wilcox, Gurkhas were exposed to every form of terror, and they could reply only with their valour and the rifles and the two machine guns per battalion with which they were armed, and yet they did it. So thank you for your service. Now there are letters in the public domain and documents... Uh, you can go to the Imperial War Museum in London and, uh, and go to the archives. And uh, there it is rich in experience of the time. So this podcast will be littered with letters and statements as well. Here's a letter from a young child to their dad, their daddy, on the front line. Dear daddy, I hope you're not alarmed. You should not be unless you know where one of the zaps went. I've heard that it raided London up the Strand and caused heavy causalities. But this I know because I saw, and so did everyone else in the house. Here is my story. I heard the clock strike eleven o'clock. I was in bed and just going to sleep. Between two o'clock and two-thirty o'clock, Lily, the servant, woke Miss Willie and told her she could hear the guns. Miss Willie woke Pullman and told him to wake me. He did so. Miss Willie helped Mrs. Willie downstairs. We were all awake by now. We had a Miss Blair staying with us for the weekend. We saw flashes and then heard bangs and, and pops. Suddenly a bright yellow light appeared and died down again. Oh, it's all right, said Pullman. It's only a star shell. That light appeared again. And we, Miss Blair, Pullman and I rushed to the window and looked out. And there, right above us, was the Zep. It had broken in half and was like this. It was in flames, roaring and crackling. It went slightly to the right and crashed down into a field. It was about a hundred yards away from the house and directly opposite us. It nearly burnt itself out when it was finished by the Chesant Fire Brigade. I would rather not describe the condition of the crew... Of course they were dead, burnt to death. They were roasted. There was absolutely no other word for it. They were brown like the outside of roast beef. One had his legs off at the knees and you could see the joint. The Zep was bombed from an aeroplane above with an incendiary bomb by a Lieutenant Robert Johnson. We have some relics somewhere, some wire and some wood framework. The weather is beastly but Mrs. and Miss Willie are jolly people. Hoping you're well. Love to all. Your loving son, Patrick. Please don't be alarmed. All is well that ends well. And this did for us. We are all quite safe. It fascinates me to think of the people who, the naive millions left at home to just be and do. And that lad being one of them what he imagined those people went through inside that zeppelin. So sad. So what was it like to be at home? You know, you've got certain supplies of food cut off, so rationing wasn't introduced till later, but it still was an issue. Here's some information about rationing from the Imperial War Museum archives. Well, there was no rationing at the early part of the First World War. The result was it was very difficult getting hold of food. Especially me, 
and women had to queue up very early in the morning. Somebody would say, now there's your butcher's shop up the road there, they've got some meat. And they would queue up hours before the butcher's shop opened, on the off chance of perhaps getting only a, a bone with a bit of meat on. They had to just accept anything that's going. Hmm? It was the same with cigarettes. Somebody along the street would see a chap, he'd say, by the way, there's some cigarettes to be had down such and such a place, and, and there'd be a mad rush there, and you had to accept anything they offered them. There'd be a man standing up inside the shop saying, I've got a packet of woodbines here. Anybody want a packet of woodbines? Mad rush. Or he'd perhaps get a packet of some fancy cigarettes. Through no ration scheme and operation, it made things very difficult to purchase either cigarettes, beer or food. For a, a long stretch of the war, it was very difficult, especially buying meat and that sort of thing. Yeah, I can remember lining up for potatoes, meat. Yeah, that didn't worry us because we never had plenty of meat. Fruit? Well, we'd have fruit once a week, so those shortages didn't worry us. Margarine was four pence a pound. When my boyfriend came home with his, he had the naval uniform, you know. He was like a, a petty officer, and well, he'd go to the shops and he'd get a little bit more, you see. And my mother, <laughs> she always relied on him coming home. I did not been able to get what you want. Can't nip down Tesco's. Amazing. So full rationing was fully introduced to Britain in 1918. Key foodstuffs like sugar, meat, butter, cheese and margarine were now apportioned more fairly. A chap called William Holmes in the Imperial War Museum archives explained how the system worked. Yeah, you can only have so much, yeah? You had a ration card. Everyone had a ration card. It was numbered. And in order to buy anything, you had to take it to the butcher or a baker or anybody. Yeah? He would mark on that ration book what he was giving you, you see. You only had a certain amount. You were allowed so many ounces of this or so much, you know, meat and all that kind a week. Then we had enough, but uh, you couldn't have what you wanted like normally. We never starved or, or anything like that. No. But you know, some people did go hungry. And that's kind of unimaginable. As parents eating not much so their kids could little sacrifices every day. This is one of Mary Borden's poems. The song, The Song of the Mud. This is the song of the mud, the pale yellow glistening mud that covers the hills like satin, the grey gleaming silvery mud that is spread like enamel over the valleys, the frothing, squirting, spurting liquid mud that gurgles along the roadbeds, the thick, elastic mud that is kneaded and pounded and squeezed under the hoofs of the horses, the invincible, inexhaustible mud of the war zone. This is the song of the mud, the uniform of the poilu. His coat is of mud, his great, dragging, flapping coat that is too big for him and too heavy. His coat that once was blue and now is grey and stiff with the mud that cakes to it. This is the mud that clothes him. His trousers and boots are of mud, and his skin is of mud, and there is mud in his beard. His head is crowned with a helmet of mud. He wears it well. He wears it as a king wears the ermine that bores him. He has set a new style in clothing, and he has introduced the chic of mud. This is the song of the mud that wriggles its way into battle. The impertinent, the intrusive, the ubiquitous, the unwelcome, 
the slimy, inveterate nuisance that fills the trenches, that mixes in with the food of the soldiers, that spoils the working of motors and crawls into their secret parts, that spreads itself over the guns, that sucks the guns down and holds them fast in its slimy, voluminous lips, that has no respect for destruction and muzzles the bursting shells and slowly, softly, easily soaks up the fire, the noise, soaks up the energy and the courage, soaks up the power of armies, soaks up the battle, just soaks it up and thus stops it. This is the hymn of mud, the obscene, the filthy, the putrid, the vast liquid grave of our armies. It has drowned our men. Its monstrous distended belly reeks with the undigested dead. Our men have gone into it, sinking slowly and struggling and slowly disappearing. Our fine men, our brave, strong, young men, our glowing red, shouting, brawny men, slowly, inch by inch, they have gone down into it, into its darkness, its thickness, its silence. Slowly, irresistibly, it drew them down, sucked them down, and they were drowned in thick, bitter, heaving mud. Now it hides them. Oh, so many of them. Under its smooth, glistening surface, it is hiding them blandly. There is not a trace of them. There is no mark where they went down. The mute, enormous mouth of the mud has closed over them. This is the song of the mud, the beautiful, glistening, golden mud that covers the hills like satin. The mysterious gleaming silvery mud that is spread like enamel over the valley. Mud, the disguise of the war zone. Mud, the mantle of battles. Mud, the smooth, fluid grave of our soldiers. This is the song of the mud. My Boy Jack by Kipling Have you news of my boy Jack? Not this time. When do you think that he'll come back? Not with this wind blowing. And this tide. Has anyone else had word of him? Not this tide. For what is sunk will hardly swim. Not with this wind blowing. And this tide. Oh dear, what comfort can I find? None this tide. Nor any tide. Except he did not shame his kind. Not even with that wind blowing. And that tide. Then hold your head up all the more. This tide and every tide. Because he was the son you bore. And gave to that wind blowing. And that tide. Many, many letters to and fro to soldiers serving from their sweethearts, from their family, mothers, fathers, grandparents, aunties, uncles. All writing to communicate. Didn't have Facebook, did they? It's all letters. Here's one from a concerned wife. My dearest Will, I feel I must write to you again, dear. Although there's not much news to tell you. 
I wonder how you're getting on. I shall be so relieved to get a letter from you. I can't help feeling a bit anxious, dear. I know how you must have felt, darling, when you did not get my letters for so long. Of course, I know, dear, you'll write as soon as ever you can, but the time seems so dull and weary without any news of you. If only this war was over, dear, and we were together again, it will be one day, I suppose. Don't think, dear, I am worrying unnecessarily about you, because I know God can take care of you wherever you are, and if it's his will, darling, he will. So are you to come back to me? That's how I feel about it, dear. If we only put our trust in him, I'm sure he will. I wonder how your cousins are getting on, dear. We're feeling very anxious about George, as new news has come from him yet. We can't understand why his wife doesn't write. How are your hands now, dear? Mine are very sore, so chapped, and my left hand has got several chilblains on it, and they do irritate. I could scratch it to bits. Have you been receiving the books I've sent you, dear? I'm very pleased to say, dear, I'm keeping very well indeed, and I trust you are the same. There has been a bit of a farce over Arthur this week. He's been trying to get in the army, unbeknown to his parents, but Mrs. T thought his parents ought to be informed about it, so she wrote and told them about him, and he had to go home in a hot haste last night. I guess he got in a fine row, but he won't say today. He is as miserable as anything. Really, Will, I never saw such a boy as he is. I'm afraid he's going to the bad. I don't know if Mrs. T will keep him on or not. He says he has to join up in a fortnight, but as he's underage, I suppose his parents could stop him. I don't know whether they will or not. For my part, I hope he does go. He'll be a jolly good riddance, for there is nothing but rows and deceitfulness going on where he is. Well, darling, I, I don't know much more to say now, so we'll close with fondest love and kisses from your loving little girl, Emily. P.S. Cheer up, darling. And don't worry about me, I'm quite all right. Only anxious to get your letters. There's good news in the papers. Love from Mum and Dad. Strange Meeting by Wilfred Owen It seemed that out of battle I escaped down some profound, dull tunnel long since scooped through granites which titanic wars had groined. Yet also there were encumbered sleepers groaned, too fast in thought or death to be bestirred. Then, as I probed them, one sprang up and stared with piteous recognition in fixed eyes, lifting distressful hands as if to bless. And by his smile, I knew that sullen hall. By his dead smile, I knew we stood in hell. With a thousand fears, that vision's face was grained. Yet no blood reached there from the upper ground, and no gun stumped or down the flues made moan. Strange friend, I said, here is no cause to mourn. None, said that other, save the undone years, the hopelessness. Whatever hope is yours was my life also. I went hunting wild after the wildest beauty in the world, which lies not calm in eyes or braided hair, but mocks the steady running of the hour. And if it grieves, grieves richlier than here. For by my glee might many men have laughed, and of my weeping something had been left which must die now. I mean, the truth untold, the pity of war, the pity war distilled. Now men will go content with what we spoiled, 
or discontent, boil bloody and be spilled. They will be swift with swiftness of the tigress. None will break ranks, though nations trek from progress. Courage was mine, and I had mystery. Wisdom was mine, and I had mastery. To miss the march of this retreating world into vain citadels that are not walled. Then, when much blood had clogged their chariot wheels, I would go up and wash them from sweet wells, even when truths that lie too deep were taint. I would have poured my spirit without stint, but not through wounds, not in the cess of war. Foreheads of men have bled where no wounds were. I am the enemy you killed, my friend. I knew you in this dark. For so you frowned yesterday through me as you jabbed and killed. I parried, but my hands were loath and cold. Let us sleep now. It's Wool Girls by Jessie Pipe. There's the girl who clips your ticket for the train, and the girl who speeds the lift from floor to floor. There's the girl who does a milk round in the rain, and the girl who calls for orders at your door. Strong, sensible and fit, they're out to show their grit and tackle jobs with energy and knack, no longer caged and penned up. They're going to keep their end up till the khaki soldier boys come marching back. There's the motor girl who drives a heavy van. There's the butcher girl who brings your joint of meat. There's the girl who calls all fares, please, like a man, and the girl who whistles taxis up the street. Beneath each uniform beats a heart that's soft and warm. Though of canny mother wit they show no lack. But a solemn statement this is. They've no time for love and kisses till the khaki soldier boys come marching back. And to hear from some of the um, RAF members is fascinating. Kind of think, wow, there were planes a hundred years ago flying in battle. Absolutely astounding, really. I think that long ago, combat was in the air. Here's an interesting excerpt from some Imperial War Museum archival information from a chap who's had to take aerial photographs, some reconnaissance. Taking the photographs was a very pleasant job in the summertime, but in the winter, not very funny. Our camera gear was slung over the side of the aircraft, and to work your camera, it was a one-plate camera, no repeats at all, one-plate camera. You had to take your slide out of the box, your glove off, of course, get it into the camera, then wriggle your way through the archie bursts over your target, take your photograph away from the archie bursts, I assure you, close up the plate, take the slide out of the camera, back into your box. By that time your hand was so cold that over and over again I've known my hand to lose the plate as I took it out of the camera, and I've known myself cry with numbness and Pain in my hand and exasperation at losing repeated photographs that I've been trying to get. I've known myself crying with tears, freezing on the side of my face in the cold blast off the propeller. Well, that doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? final poem I'm going to read is amongst my favourite. I think every British school child at some point has studied it, imagined the reality of the images conjured by these tangible, vivid, shocking words. Dolce et decorum est. Bent double like old beggars under sacks. 
knock-kneed, coughing like hags we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone was still yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim, through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea, I saw him, drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some... Smothering dreams you two could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in. And watch the white eyes writhing in his face. His hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs. Obscene as cancer. Bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dolce et decorum est, pro patria ori. I think it's sweet and fitting to be proud of your country. I see nothing wrong with that. A bit of unity is a good thing. Just because you're proud of your country doesn't mean you're dissing others, right? I love the connectivity in this world. I love the people who I've met online and reality from all corners. And no matter what race, religion, culture, creed you are, we can get on, right? We can. There's no excuse not to. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your service. All those that have, are, and will be. Music was from the outstanding Kevin MacLeod. You can find his music on Free Music Archive, for now anyway. But do look him up. He's immensely talented. Thank you to the Imperial War Museum. And all sources of all poetry read and letters read today. That could be nice to someone. <laughs> And go be the best humanity, the best human you can be. That's all you can do. Good luck.